Good morning. Let's take a look, continue our study of the book of Luke as we have been here uh, a little over a year and a half. We have come to Jesus' final week in the life and ministry of our Lord. He is uh, three and a half years in. He is uh, um, he's on Wednesday and he will die on Friday. And so the last two days of his life before his resurrection, he is preparing his disciples, specifically the 12, and to, uh, by extension, everyone who reads the account, disciple of Christ is a follower of Christ. So those who follow Christ were all equipped by this information, but the, but the main audience on that day and what's being written was to the 12. There were enemies around, the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus has answered their questions. They don't even know what to say to Jesus anymore. They just quit asking him questions. Jesus has turned to his disciples, and they are looking as they leave Jerusalem that day. To leave Jerusalem, you go out, you, you head east, you go through the Kidron Valley, and you walk up the Mount of Olives. And on the other side of the Mount of Olives is a little town called Bethany. And in Bethany, that's where Jesus is staying each night that week. His friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, live there. Two sisters and a brother. And he stays with them. We learn a little bit more about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in the book of uh, John, the Gospel of John, I should say, uh, where Jesus has raised Lazarus to life. But at any rate, they're leaving Jerusalem that day. Jesus has been teaching in the temple. And apparently, as they step up on the Mount of Olives and they look out over the beauty of the setting sun, uh, the temple is prominent, and the disciples say, isn't that beautiful, Lord? Isn't that amazing? And Jesus affirms that it was a beautiful structure by all accounts, but he tells them there's coming a day when that beautiful, amazing structure, that worshipful house of God that's been corrupted. In fact, the previous context, Jesus is showing how corrupted that has been, where people are going in and selling, buying and selling, using God's temple to buy and sell and to use it for for merchandising purposes and, and for shortcuts and for the, the religious leaders of the day to bilk these poor uh, widows of their money, Jesus says, yeah, those beautiful stones, there's coming a day when there won't be one stone left upon another. Of course, the disciples say, when will this happen? In verse 7, when is this going to happen? And what will be the sign? What will be the miracle that precedes this coming? Give us some information, Jesus. We want that information too. That's why these are very interesting chapters in Matthew chapter 24 and in Mark 13 and Luke 21 where we get what's called the Olivet Discourse. As I told you last week, it's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Hence, the Mount of Olives Discourse or the Mount of the Olivet Discourse. Sounds really technical, doesn't it? The Olivet Discourse. Yeah, what were you doing in church on Sunday? We were listening to the Olivet Discourse. You'll end the conversation there normally because people are too hesitant to say, what, what, what's that? They'll usually bob their head. Yeah, 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 the Olivet Discourse. You go home and ask, what's that? It's Jesus' summation of the end times on Wednesday before his death on the Mount of Olives. So Jesus tells them, it, without answering exactly when, he tells them, look, don't be, don't be duped. Don't be misled by all the false teaching that's out there and of the false teaching that is on the horizon as the end times approach. He tells them, verse 8, don't be misled. See to it that you're not misled. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. That is, I'm the Messiah. Guys, he's telling them there's going to be many Messiahs coming upon the scene. Many people saying, follow me, and saying that the time is near. Do not go after them, Jesus says in verse 8. Verse 9, when you hear of wars and disturbances, or Matthew and, and Mark speak of rumors of wars, wars, rumors of wars, disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first. Note this, but the end does not follow immediately. So what Jesus was saying then is playing out even today. We hear of wars all over the planet. Rumors of wars, disturbances. In fact, move on in verse 10. He continued by saying that nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in, and in various places, plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from the heavens. But all of these, Jesus is saying, and all of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that these are not signs of the end. So don't be misled then or now. Today, we like to see things. We read about great earthquakes and, and horrible earthly disturbances, tornadoes and tsunamis. And we think, ah, oh, the end must be around the corner. Well, the end is around the corner, but that's not why we should think that. 
We think the end is around the corner because Jesus said, I could come at any moment, be ready. But Jesus, by his own words, is saying, these are not the signs. So when there's another earthquake, it happens over in Mongolia, or an earthquake in San Francisco, and we sit around in our groups and we say, well, that must mean the end is coming. Jesus is saying, don't think that. Wars, rumors of wars. The world is going to go to pot. We hear that North Korea wants to send a a nuclear missile and can reach the United States. The end must be coming. Or that Russia is going to launch an attack and blah, blah, blah. These are wars and rumors of wars. Just what Jesus said, but the end does not come immediately. Verse 12. He says, before all these things. And mind you, Jesus again is talking to the 12. Before all of these things I just said. Before those who will come in my name saying I am. And those who are, who are uh, speaking of wars and disturbances. And there's rumors everywhere. And there's plagues. Before all that, Jesus says in verse 12. They will lay hands on you. And I just, I, I put in a box. Or just pinned around a box. Every time he says you here. They will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you into the synagogues and the prisons and bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give to you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to put, uh, resist or refute. But you will be, be betrayed by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated. By all because of my name. But not a hair of your head will perish. He's simply saying guys. The twelve. You're going to endure before any of these things. Of the end times. Before the end times come upon the world. You guys. Are going to be persecuted severely. Bad things are going to happen to you. You're going to go and stand before kings. To defend the faith. Governors. You're going to have to defend yourselves. And we see that play out in the book of Acts. We see many of these, these men died even before they faced the persecution that Jesus will bring to a climax here in verse 20. We see the apostle Paul. He faced a couple of governors. He even faced the emperor Nero. The emperor of Rome had to stand before Nero. Had to, he appealed his case to Nero because the Jews wanted to kill him. And he was a Jew. We see James go before the governor, one of Herod's sons. And he's killed. Peter is arrested by Herod and, and planned to be killed. But he escaped and later died at the hands of Nero. These men stood before governors, and God's word went out to the world. We read the Bible today because of what those 12 men said, how they died, and God inspired some of their words. Men like Matthew and John and Peter and James. We get the words of our apostles who suffered that way based on what Jesus told them would happen. They died martyrs. Others, after the 12, died as martyrs. In fact, I read a statistic about 30 years ago. I wrote an article on it in this company I used to work for, and it was called, there have been, the title is, there have been more martyrs in the 20th century, 20th century, I know we're in the 21st, but I wrote it in the 20th century. There's been more martyrs in the 20th century, that is, more people who died for their faith in the 20th century alone. That's 1901 to the year 2000. That's the 20th century. In that 100 years, more people died for their faith in Jesus Christ than the previous 19 combined. So we see that what Jesus said, what started off in that first century on the, with the 12, has increased multiple. So Jesus is just telling him, guys, the end is going to come, and there's going to be all of these disturbances and wars and famines and diseases and earthquakes. But before that happens, guys, you're going to be persecuted. And then in verse 20, he says, but when you, and I think he's still talking to the 12, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Now, Jesus is speaking to the disciples. It is April the 1st, A.D. 33. In August of A.D. 70, which is 37 years later, the temple in Israel, the very temple they're looking at and commenting on, commenting on how beautiful it is, was leveled by the Romans. Now, they began their siege in AD 66. By 70, they completely destroyed it. Emperor Vespasian, who was the emperor of Rome, sent his son, who was the general of the army, his name was Titus, and Titus came and completely desecrated and destroyed the temple. What's left of the temple today is just the outer wall that King Herod the Great built around it, called the Western Wailing Wall. It's just only a part of it, that western part of the wall that was there. The temple was leveled, scraped, 
You see stones lying on stones today. What's left of the rubble of that old temple? Are there even today? And Jesus is telling these 12, guys, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Now, Peter and Paul didn't even live to see the desecration of the temple, or I should say the sacking of Jerusalem. They died by AD 66. The temple was destroyed in 70. And we know that Luke is writing before that time, both Luke and Acts, and he wrote after Matthew, Mark, and Mark, So they're all writing before the destruction of the temple. Our liberal theologians of the day say, no, no, no. The Gospels had to be written much later than that because they predicted the falling of the temple. And you can't predict the falling of the temple. That would be divine. And so since liberals don't believe in divine truth, you've heard of these people. They're called the Jesus Seminar. Sounds like they're Christians, don't they? The Jesus Seminar. No, they're not. Nothing about what a Christian is. They are there to tell you the Bible isn't true. But Luke is writing long before that. He's recording Jesus' words in AD 33. And he's telling the disciples, watch out when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Now, Jerusalem began to be surrounded by armies by AD 66. And Jesus tells them in AD 33, in verse 21, then those who are in Judea, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, if you're in Judea, and by the way, Judea is the region uh, that encapsulates Jerusalem. Be like Houston is the, the city. Texas is the state, Judea is the state, Jerusalem would be the city. If you are in Judea and you know about Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. Don't go to the city. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. Why? Because these are days of vengeance. Vengeance. This would be God's vengeance upon the holy city. Now, up to this point, we've seen in the ministry of Jesus, and especially at the end of chapter 20 and the beginning of chapter 21, how crooked the city the Jews have become. And so the vengeance of God is, you people have made my father's house, which is a house of prayer, you've turned it into a robber's den. Remember he said that? Uh, He's watching a poor widow in chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, go and put her last cent in the coffers, the religious leaders should have been there to say, no, we, you don't, oh, we don't need your money, ma'am. We need to help you. Don't give that. No, they were bilking those poor widows and everyone else who came along. Not only the widows with money, but people with bad teaching. So they've got bad teaching, and now the vengeance of God will level the Jerusalem temple. And that's what happened in AD 70. And Judaism, as was known for the 2,500 years prior, was gone. You see, Judaism cannot survive without a temple. Without a temple in Jerusalem and a priesthood from the tribe of Levi from the descendants of Aaron. You cannot get mediation between man and God without an Aaronic priest. That's a man who descends from the line of Aaron. Remember Moses' brother, who's from the tribe of Levi. No one even knows where the tribe of Levi is. The only place God would allow a sacrifice was in Jerusalem by a priest from Aaron's line, and that's it. Without that temple and that priesthood, Judaism is gone. There is no worship for a Jew. Jews cannot worship God unless they receive their Messiah. You know him as Jesus of Nazareth. They can try. They can have their synagogues. They can stand by the Western Wailing Wall and bob to their their heart's desire, back and forth. God is not listening. There is no mediator between them and God. There is only one mediator between God and man. The name, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Not Not a Catholic priest, not Lance Waldy. We can pray for each other, but there is only one mediator. His name is Jesus. That's why when we pray, we say, in the name of Jesus. Before we close our prayer, Lord, we're asking these things in the name of Jesus. He is our mediator. The Son of God to get to God the Father. Amen? Are you with me? End time stuff. This is good stuff. Your head's going to spin at the end of this. Of course, I mean that figuratively. I don't even know what that would look like otherwise. So, unlike, now stay with me, unlike Matthew and Mark who speak of this event 
Luke, I believe, speaks of this event in the near. Luke is speaking of an event that will happen in A.D. 70. He's telling the disciples in A.D. 33, guys, here's what's going to happen. Before all of the signs start to happen, which aren't the end of the time, before that, you're going to be persecuted. In fact, if you're still alive and you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, just take off running. Be, whether it be you or the Jews in Israel, just leave. Horrible desecrations are coming. And we know what happened in A.D. 70 from the writings of Josephus. In his book of the war, horrors that transpired, the way people died, over a million people died in that war. And 97,000 plus were taken as slaves by Rome. Imagine that, over a million people died. About a thousand of them escaped and went up and lived on Mount Masada until they were killed in AD 73. Of course, they weren't killed by the Romans. They killed themselves before the Romans came in. It was a horrible time. And God, God the Son is telling His disciples, here's what's going to happen. But He's telling them about them. He's telling them about the A.D. 70-ish situation. Now, let me show you. Okay, hold, see that ribbon? If you have an inspired Bible, you've got at least one ribbon. Turn to the left. Until you get to Matthew, you'll go to Mark and then Matthew. Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Same context. We're in the exact same context. Matthew's version of the of events is the same as Luke's, with a little tweak. You can see in Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, Jesus is in the same discourse. He said, They will deliver you to tribulation, they will kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Uh, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise, blah, blah, blah. Same thing. Jesus is just telling them in Matthew the same thing we, ha- we read in Luke. But when, when Matthew gets to this next point, he says in verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. He doesn't say you understand. The reader. What reader? Jesus is anticipating that there's going to come a time in the future. There's a near future. He's talking about in Luke 21. And there's a far future. That... Both Matthew and Mark speak of. A time when the abomination of desolation, I'll, I'll explain that, will set up. And at that time, it's not you guys that should listen, the 12. It's the reader. Who is that? That's you and me. We're the ones reading it. Jesus is anticipating this will be written down. This will be inspired and kept and preserved for the future generation that read this. Let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things Blah, blah, blah. Same thing. Okay, so stay with me. Luke, I believe, is talking about, guys, here's what's going to happen in A.D. 70 for you. Matthew and Mark are talking about the same event, but they're talking about it, yes, way, way, way in the future. Not A.D. 70, but the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem. We see this in the Bible. It's called near and far fulfillment in the Bible. If you're a reader, you read, uh, say, Isaiah. Most of you know that uh, Matthew quotes from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, when Jesus is born, remember Jesus was born through Mary, and Mary had not had relations with a man. She was a virgin. This virgin girl births a baby. That's a miracle. I mean, none of us could say that happened to us. And Matthew quotes from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where Isaiah says the virgin will be with child. It will be a sign. Here's the problem. The context of Isaiah chapter 7 has nothing to do with Jesus having been, or the the Messiah being born. It has to do with a wicked king named King Ahaz. King Ahaz. You've heard of King Ahaz? He was a wicked guy. Isaiah was the prophet in the day at King Ahaz. He was a king in the south in Judea. And Isaiah said, here's what God is going to do. Ahaz, ask God for a sign, whether it be high as the heavens or lowest point of the earth, God will give you the sign. And Ahaz said, I don't want a sign. Ahaz didn't even believe in God. I don't want a sign. And so Isaiah says, behold, you don't want a sign? God will give you a sign anyway. And apparently Isaiah pointed to a, a virgin woman, perhaps his own wife at the time, or a woman who would become his wife, and said, the virgin will be with child. And he will do this, 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 and this. 
and it will be a sign to you, Ahaz, that God is your enemy. Later on, Isaiah chapter 8, we see here a woman who has a child. In fact, it's Isaiah's wife. And so Matthew takes that, and he says, here's the ultimate fulfillment of that prophecy. So stay with me. You still with me? What are you going to do? Say no? (laughs) Isaiah 735 B.C. gives a prophecy that has a near fulfillment in the context of Isaiah's life, King Ahaz. 700 plus years later, it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's not that complicated. The near fulfillment in Ahaz's day, 735 B.C., the ultimate fulfillment in Jesus' day. You with me? I don't know why I say that, but I got to make sure you are. I want to make sure you're awake. The same thing I believe is happening here. Jesus is telling the disciples, guys, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies in 37 years, he doesn't say that, but it's going to happen 37 years later. Actually, it's about 33 years later because they began to surround it in AD 66. When you begin to see this, this is a fulfillment that you're, uh, I'm telling you that, that Jerusalem is going down. And it did in AD 70. And that was a near fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment is spoken of by Matthew and Mark. You see, Luke just says in 21, he says in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize that her desolation is near. Matthew says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Okay, the abomination of desolation is three words. Abomination means something disgusting, horribly offensive. Desolation means to be destroyed. Something that is completely disgusting, something that is highly offensive, that destroys. What is it? Well, when we put what Daniel's prophecy says together with what we know in the book of Revelation, we know that the abomination of desolation is a picture. It's an image, an image of a man. We know that the temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in A.D. 70, and to this day has not been rebuilt. It remains unbuilt. In other words, Judaism still remains completely and totally bankrupt. But there is this hope, this belief that that temple will be rebuilt. And we get that from, you'll see it on your your piece of paper, from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. The 70 weeks of Israel. The 70 weeks of Israel. That is 70 weeks or 77s. The interpretation is 490 years. God is saying, I am separating 490 years to chastise my people Israel. Now, we know the first 483 were complete because Daniel's own prophecy says the first 69 of those 79 weeks end when the Messiah is killed or cut off. And we know when that happened. But Daniel 9.27 speaks of the last week When it speaks of a man called the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come will make a new treaty with Israel for one week. That's the last seven years. For one seven. So the first 69 sevens are completely separated from the last seven. And we're in that gap. You and I live in that gap. A parenthesis, as it were. Called the church age where the, the gospel, because it was rejected by the Jews, went to the Gentiles. We see that begin to unfold in the book of Acts. And we are still living in that day where the gospel goes to Gentiles. A Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. Very general term for anyone who's not a Jew. The gospel has come to us. We, at least most of us in this room, believe that. We are Gentiles who have come to faith. We know from Romans chapter 11 that when the full number of Gentiles, as it inches up, when the full number of Gentiles believes... God goes back and finishes his plan with Israel. That's that last seven years. That last seven years, that 70th week of Daniel, that Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 speaks of. And then that 927 speaks of that last seven years being cut in the middle. So we believe that the Jews will rebuild their temple. A world ruler will rise up called the, the prince who shall come. The Apostle Paul calls him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the man of lawlessness or the lawless one. 
First John chapter 2 speaks of many antichrists who have come, but antichrist with a capital A is coming. Revelation chapter 13 calls him the beast. This man will be a world ruler. He will rise up. In fact, I've put it in your, your bulletin, I believe. And there are number four. It's just kind of a, a little unfolding event here. You've got a world leader will arise. I've given you the names that the Bible calls him. I didn't put beast on there. The Jews will rebuild their temple under this man because they're going to think he's on our side. He is a Jewish man. He's, or if he's not a Jewish man, he's someone that we can trust. And so they enter into this seven-year covenant with him, and they rebuild their temple. We await that day. We know that three and a half years in, according to Daniel 9, 27, that Antichrist, that lawless one, breaks his deal. See, when you're a lawless one, when you're the man of lawlessness, you are not bound by law. Law doesn't mean anything to you. You do your own thing. So he will no doubt abolish the law and make his own rules. He will abandon that. And when he abandons that, he is going to set up an image in the holy temple of God. And you don't do this in the Jerusalem temple. Only people that can go into the temple are Jews. The only people that can go into the Holy of Holies are, is the high priest. Not just a priest, but the high priest. And that only once a year. This guy is going to go in there, and he's going to desecrate it. The abomination of desolation. This horribly offensive act, which will bring great destruction. And he's going to set up an image of himself, of himself in the Jewish temple. He's got a right-hand man. The Revelation 13 calls the false prophet, the beast from the earth. I mean, I don't mean to be ugly. I really don't. I, I just, I'll say this just to alert you. I believe it would easily be the Pope because he is seen as a world religious leader or someone like, and this is not a joke, Joel Osteen. So when I say the false prophet, that's the guy that will bring the world to worship that image. Daniel 9, 27. Daniel 11, chapter... Chapter 11, verse 31. Daniel chapter 12, verse 11 calls it the abomination of desolation. And Matthew says it. I'm back in Matthew. So he's telling them the far interpretation. In Luke, he says, guys, here's what's going to happen in about 33 years. Watch out. Near fulfillment. Matthew and Mark speak of the far fulfillment. When the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. When you see it standing in the holy place... You readers out there, remember, he's not talking to the 12 anymore. Let the reader understand. Let me just summarize. Run. Get out of Dodge. Matthew 24, 21 says, Then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. This is not just earthquakes that we heard about, that we read about, that we watched on the National Geographic channel. Wow, that looks bad. Let's go back to work here in the United States. It's not just a, a tsunami that happened in Japan after an earthquake that we felt nothing and knew nothing. This is worldwide tribulation. This is not wars and rumors of wars. This is a worldwide war that everyone feels. Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, rumblings. He calls them birth pangs in Matthew's gospel. Like a woman about to have a baby who hasn't yet had a baby. That's going to happen, guys. Let that be. That is what it is. But when you see Jerusalem in AD 70 surrounded, run. Far fulfillment, when you readers read it, there's coming a day when Jerusalem. Is it is that hard to imagine that Jerusalem today would be surrounded by armies? Not at all, is it? So it's not so far-fetched. If you would have read this prior to 1948... Someone would have said, Jerusalem is completely a nothingness. No one lives there. No one cares to live there. It's a desolate wasteland. Mark Twain visited Israel and Jerusalem in the 1800s and said, no one could ever live here. This place is a wasteland of nothingness. And he was right by all accounts. But by 1948, when Israel was able to get a state back and move in, all you got to do is travel around Jerusalem today, and Israel, it is a first world country. It is a democratic nation. 
Jews are flocking to that place. And there will be a day when that world ruler comes in and says, by the way, it's all good now. We're going to let you rebuild your temple. Jews will flock there in droves, especially as anti-Semitism today we've seen in our day. How it is amped up. We have Jew haters all over the planet in the United States that we didn't even know about. Supporting Hamas. And you think, could the world be more crazy? Yeah, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. But we see it now. We see hints of it with the wars and the rumors of wars. And so, again, Luke's gospel is talking about a near fulfillment. Matthew is talking about a far fulfillment. They're both going to be fulfilled. One was, one will be. So let's go back to Luke and let's finish our text in Luke. By the way, you would never hear this in a Presbyterian church, Lutheran church, Catholic church, even a Baptist church, because they're not dispensational churches. You look at this and you say, wait a minute, this has got to mean something. Well, most churches today would say all of this was fulfilled in A.D. 70. You dispensationalists need to move on with your lives. Jesus is just coming back, and I find that to be not only offensive, but very lazy scholarship. Lazy is a real nice way to say your scholarship stinks. There's no way you can plug in what Isaiah says, what Ezekiel says, what Daniel says, what the book of Revelation says, what 2 Thessalonians says. You cannot connect the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and put them together and say all of that happened in A.D. 70. If you do, then you can just say, Jesus, he may or may not have been the Messiah. If you're going to mess with prophecy the way that amillennialists do, you might as well just say, well, Jesus is just, he may or may not be the way, the truth, and the life. Why give yourself the liberality to handle prophecy and then be conservative with the direct words of Jesus? Why not be consistent? So, back to Luke. Run, verse 22, these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. Wrath to this people. This people. And there was wrath. As I said, over a million Jews were slaughtered. And 97,000, almost 100,000 were taken as slaves to Rome. Verse 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles are anyone who's not a Jew. Trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So even Jesus is saying there's a time designated. When Jesus is talking, yes, the Jews are dominated by Rome, but there's a Jewish temple. And the worship in Jerusalem is uh, officiated through the priests. It was all there. Judaism was there. But the Jews had rejected their Messiah, and they would kill their Messiah. They would hand their Messiah over to Rome to be murdered, and that's exactly what happened. But the Gentiles, times of the Gentiles is going to occur after A.D. 70, until even the present day. What does that mean? A young man asked me that the other day. He, was showing, he said, what, is it? what does it mean to be trampled underfoot? And I said, well, imagine your room. Imagine someone going into your room at your house and trashing your place, taking all the things you have on your wall and your computer and your phone, whatever else, whatever you hold dear in your room at your home, and someone just living in your room and doing whatever they want. That's Jerusalem under Gentile control. Under the Gentiles, during the times of the Gentiles, which comes to an end when Jesus says it comes to an end. So when does it come to an end? It comes to an end at the end. In fact, we know the midpoint is when the abomination is set up. We know the beginning point, by the way, is when the treaty is signed. It will be for seven years. And part of the treaty is that Israel will get to rebuild their temple. Now, their temple site That's an interesting one, because what sits on their temple site? The Muslim Dome of the Rock. Do you know of any Muslim that might say, you know what, we've been here long enough. Let's scrape our place off, and you guys can have yours now. I don't know how that happens. I'll be honest, I don't know. I I have surmised that Islam at that time will be wiped from the earth. 
And I think it happens during the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 39, but it's just me surmising. I don't know. Could be that the Muslims get together and, and they, they bring together this idea that, okay, let's lie. They lie about everything else. Let's lie to Israel and say that they're our friends and we'll let them build a temple. Some believe that the Temple uh, Mount is actually not where the Muslim Dome of the Rock, Rock is. It's moreover towards the city of David, which is just a little bit south from where they are. So be it. Wherever it is, they're going to rebuild that temple. That begins the seven years. Now, you and I, are we going to be here to say, wow, check it out. Now we know. Well, not if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, you will have been raptured. Oh, what's that? The rapture of the church. You see, we have no business being here during that last seven years. Number one, it's for Israel. It's for Israel. Number two, God takes his people out in order to allow the world to do what it does because you and I are the preservative on this planet. Those of us who know Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. We preserve the world even though the world loathes us and thinks we're a bunch of crazies. Fine, whatever. We are the preservative on this earth. When God removes us, Pardon the expression, but all hell breaks loose. And that's by God's design. But God will seal at that moment when he takes all the Christians off the earth. He seals 144,000 Jews. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We learn that in Revelation chapter 7. It's not the Jehovah's Witness church. It's not any other cultish ridiculousness. It says what it says. 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel are sealed. The whole seven years is for Israel. They will be ministered to by Israelites who will bring them, some of them, to Christ. And God will finish his plan that he told Daniel he would, he would complete. In Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Now, let me ask you, are you with me, class? No, you're not. You're not. I know you're not. It's impossible. It takes years to get all this together. And even as I'm going through, I'm going, I don't know, is that right? Did I just say that right? No, I'm not. I, that would be lazy of me um, it's, it's complicated I get it that's why I'm millennialist those who don't believe in the literal interpretation of scripture and prophecy say oh, you guys that is way too convoluted well convoluted though it may be it's biblical it's what God's word says we're going to be honest with it I'll tell you it all has a point and so what we see here as we continue the times of the Gentiles are completed after the abomination of desolation is fit in the, in the middle of that week there's still three and a half years left because that's half of seven. The book of Revelation calls that last three and a half years 42 months. It also calls it 1,260 days, and those are equivalent. With 30-day months, 42 months is 1,260 days. Also calls it a time, times, and half a time. A time being a year, times being two years, and a half a year totals three and a half years. So from 1260 days after the abomination of desolation is set up, the Son of Man will return, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the real complicated thing. When you read Daniel chapter 12, Daniel doesn't say it's 1260 days. He says it's 1290 days. Which one's right? They both are. What begins to transpire at the end of 1260 days I believe, is the sign of the Son of Man in the sky, and he takes, could, could take 30 days to descend to the earth. And people are seeing him, the one whom they pierced. And they are calling out to the mountains. They're running up to a mountain saying, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. As Jesus descends, 1290 days, Daniel then complicates matters even more. And he says, blessed are those who are still around after 1,335 days. There's the blessing. That's all those who have endured the coming of Christ, the judgments of Christ, and who are still standing at the end of 1,335 days after the abomination of desolation is set up. Now, whether you understand it or not, whether you get it all, and you've put it all and sifted it through in your mind together, what it tells us at the very least is this, God is in control. He's told us, here's how the end is going to unfold. And he's told us, you want to endure my wrath? Believe in my son. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. This horrible tribulation is not for Christians. 
The church is not even mentioned in the book of Revelation after chapter 6, after chapter 5, I should say. From 6 to 19 is the tribulation. So let's finish what Luke says here. The remaining times of the Gentiles are fulfilled at the end of 1,290 days. Jesus has returned. He judges the nations. We read about that in Matthew 25. But in Luke 21, 25, this is that last, those last moments before the end times. There will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations. Notice he doesn't say to you, to you, to you, to you. It's among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea of the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. Again, he's not no longer saying it's going to happen to you and you and you. It's to the nations. It's to men. It's to the, to the world, upon the world. Because he's speaking of the, the far future. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Powers of the heavens. That's, that's ecological signs. That's weather patterns. It's horrors in the heavens. A difficult rainstorm. We look out and we say, oh, that's, that's some bad thunder. Some huge thunder. Some bad lightning. We haven't seen anything. We haven't seen anything that even encroaches upon what is coming. The signs that brings men to complete fainting from fear. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. By the way, if you have that in quotes in your Bible or in all caps, that means it's a quote from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Where the Son of Man appears on the scene after the last of the Gentile nations have been destroyed. The Son of Man becomes king forever. That's the second coming of Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying. All this precedes it, but then there will be signs in the sun and the moon. Then they will see the coming of the Son of Man in a cloud with power and great glory. Verse 28, but when these things begin to take place, straighten up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. It's like Jesus is saying, okay, he's through at the end of verse 27. He looks back at the disciples and says, but when these things begin to take place, and they begin to take place when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies in verse 20. When that begins to happen, guys, straighten up. Sit up straight. Pick up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Your final days. When we talk about being redeemed, we talk about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are redeemed. We are bought back from slavery. But as long as we still live, our full redemption has not been had. It's been promised. We don't get that until we die. Now our full redemption is taken care of. Amen? Makes death look pretty good, doesn't it? I'm looking forward to it. Maybe not the way I die, but I'm really looking forward to it. I have nothing to cling to. I have everything on this planet, by the way. I have nothing, absolutely nothing to complain about. This is a great life for me. And it is a life of death. I will be delivered from this. I mean, I'm not trying to get out of bad health. I'm not trying to get out of a bad marriage. I'm not trying to get out of a bad anything. I got good everything. That could change in a moment. We all know that. But my redemption is there on the other side. I got nothing to cling to here, and neither do you. Don't spend all the, the money you've saved and earned all the course of your life to try to buy another year of your life. Go on home with a capital H. Your family's going, oh, wait a minute, we want, we want our dad. We want 95-year-old dad to stay with us another year. Let 95-year-old dad go home. Release the poor man. I say 95 because I don't know anyone here that's 95. If I'd have said 80-year-old, I'd have gotten in a lot of trouble. But uh, <laughs> I, You know, I was telling my, my, my in-laws the other night about the last moments with my own dad. And uh, I could tell my dad was, he could barely talk when he was uh, drawing, about to draw his last breath. And his fear was for my mother. And, and he wanted to tell me that he loved me again. Dad never failed to tell me he loved me all my life. I heard my dad tell me he loved me. And uh, as he was laying in the bed, he, he had very little strength. And he tried to go through his spiel once again. I say spiel, I don't mean it disrespectful, to tell me how much he loved me. I said, Dad, I know. You don't have to tell me. You don't have any strength to say it. I know. And I held his hand and I said, Mom is going to be fine. I have got Mom. Nothing. She's, she's my baby now, Dad. I've got her. Just a, a, a whole 
peaceful look came over him, and he died. And it wasn't right at that moment. He died shortly thereafter. In fact, I was not there when he died. My sister called and said he's gone, and it was just less than a day later. But there was a peace. Dad, I got her. I got this. Mom is taken care of. There's a peace when we know that God is in control. He's got it all. My dad didn't, shouldn't have even needed me to say that. God had my mom and still does. God has it all under his control, my friends. We live in this world of worry and fear. And who's going to be the next president? And what's the, what change here and what change there and our money and our health? You're going to get sick. Some of you are going to die. Some of us are going to die in a horrible sickness. Some of us may die preaching the gospel, may die in jail, forgotten about, preaching the gospel. We may die of cancer, a slow-moving cancer, a quick cancer. Someone may come up in the middle of, the, in the middle of downtown Houston and hit us with a, with a brick, and we die right there. We are going to die, and there's not a thing to worry about. There's not a thing to worry about. For those who are in Christ, bring it. God is completely sovereign. He knows the end from the beginning. He planned it all. And if he planned the beginning as he did, and he knows the end specifically as he does, we read about it all throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, we see that every event from the beginning that's going to make its way to the end is making its way from there to here because God ordained it. He is in control. What are we worried about? And so... The end times, a study of the end times is that, okay, well, do we just go away with a bunch of new stuff and we could tell people that we know about the end times of which we will not be part of? No, I think the study of the end times, in fact, God uh, or the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 18, he sums up the testimony of the rapture and he says what? Comfort one another with these words. You see, the end times is a study of God's comfort. I love knowing God's in control. My dad that day died knowing that his son, he was comforted that his son is going to take care of his wife. Gave him comfort. Some of you have given testimonies like that. Dad, I've got mom. Or I'll take care of things, dad. I got this. Mom, dad's going to be taken care of. Whatever it is you said to your dying loved one. You saw peace come over. If I can say that to my dad, and I am. Mom, I will protect my mother to death. She needs money. She's going to, I'll take care of my mother. I wasn't lying to my dad, but I'm just a man. All the more God, it's like God saying, Lance, I got this. Worship my holy name. I got this. I know the beginning from the end, Lance. Tell my people, I know the beginning from the end, Lance. And so I tell you today, God knows the beginning from the end. He knows your name. He knew you before you were born. He knew you before you were born. Not just before you were born because he knew you in your mama's belly. We know from Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, he knew us before mom and dad even conceived us. And since nothing is new with God, and God is eternal, God didn't somewhere on the course of eternity, as if there's a, a timeline in eternity, there's not. It's absurd to even think of it that way, but how else can we think? And in the timeline of eternity, one day did God say, ah, I conceive of Lance Waldy. One day when I make time and space, I'll have him, oh no. God's eternal. There's no new thoughts with God. I, you, we've all been in his mind from eternity. He's got it all. Oh, how we limit him by worrying. Take the end times, the lessons for us. We don't know the day of Christ's return. Don't try to predict the date. If somebody gives you a date, write them off as quacks because that's what they are. Everyone who's ever predicted a date has been wrong. Don't be misled by ignorant, false teachers. They're a dime a dozen. Don't listen to them. And make sure you know that I'm not a false teacher by looking at what I say based upon God's Word says. Everything comes to an end. Life is not perpetual, not down here. Be alert. Be alert to all things. Shun worldly worries. Our God and Savior is in control. Now, for those of you who don't know Jesus... Or you might just know who he is, and you like to use his name as a punchline. And you say, yeah, I believe him, sure, yeah, I believe something about a cross, and he died, and virgin, and all that stuff. Yeah, I believe that. I give 10%. I gave 10% one time. That's how people arrange Christianity in their minds. So oh, I'm a Republican. I must be a Christian or something. I'm pro-life. Yeah, I must be a Christian. Folks, that is not what a Christian is. 
A child of God, we call Christians, they are the children of God. And they are these people. They are these who have recognized their need for God. In other words, they say, I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. And, and God came to forgive my sins. I can't do anything to get my sins forgiven. I can't pay enough money or do enough good deeds. My offense is still before God. Someone has to pay the penalty. Someone has to pay my fine. Jesus paid it. No matter how much you've sinned, he paid it. You have to recognize that, A, you're a sinner, and that, B, Jesus paid your fine. That's why he died. He's God. God became man. He lived the perfect life, and then he died the perfect death. That death is for us if we want it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and you shall be saved. Confess with your tongue Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's two sides of the same coin, by the way. I confess because I believe. You can confess and not believe. You can believe and not confess. But when you do both, you shall be saved. You shall be saved. Really? (laughs) Folks, rejoice. Remember I told you last week? Actually, I said it on Wednesday night. Love the Lord your God. Love him. Tell him you love him. There's an excitement in loving God. When the gospel is given, say, yeah, baby. Woo. Amen. Hallelujah. Whatever. This is the most exciting news ever. We are sinners bound for hell. God lived our life, died our death, and said, I am offering you the free gift of salvation. I will forgive all your sins and bring you into my eternal kingdom. Now, when you leave today, say amen with your lives and offer your life as a living sacrifice to say thank you to the God who saved you, who knows the beginning from the end. Part three is next week. Let's pray. Father, we are a dull people, myself included. Some of us have just heard the truth for so many years. Re-excite us, ignite us with the joy that comes from knowing you. To say that we know God, we know you through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, make it, make it evident in us, to us and to others. May that joy overflow. We come here as a worship service to you, Lord, but I pray that we would leave worshiping you. That we wake up tomorrow worshiping you. And when the bad weather hits us all week and all the garbage that comes to our lives, may we remember the cross, the resurrection of our Lord. Fill us with the joy of knowing you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May God bless you, my friends. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.